Hello, and welcome to Independent Thinking, the weekly podcast from Chatham House. I'm Bronwyn Maddox, the director. We're approaching the end of 2022, and this week on the podcast, we're going to be reflecting on a year of war in Ukraine, almost 12 years of war in Syria, and doing so with someone who has witnessed firsthand both conflicts. Oz Katerji is a renowned war correspondent and freelance journalist who, in the early stages of the Syrian uprising, witnessed and reported firsthand on the brutality of the regime of Bashar al-Assad. He's written extensively on Syria and the Middle East, and earlier this year he also journeyed to Ukraine, where he was present on February 24th as Russia began its invasion. He reported vividly on the Battle of Kiev and later Donbass in Foreign Policy magazine, The New Statesman, Rolling Stone, and he has a host of other bylines. Oz, a very warm welcome to Chatham House. Thanks for having me here. Great to have you here. Joining me as well to help discuss these two conflicts, we've got Lena Katib, the director of our Middle East and North Africa program. Hi, Lena. Hello. Fresh back from Qatar and the football. <laughs> and we have James Nixie, the director of our Russia and Eurasia program as well. Hi, James. Hi, Bronwyn. Well, very good to have you all here. Let's start with Ukraine and the decision by Vladimir Putin now 10 months ago to launch the largest war seen in Europe in a generation. We're now in what some people argue is the road to Ukrainian victories. Others see a standoff as winter descends. Oz, you went to Ukraine in early January. What took you there then? I mean, from the outset, from the open source information that was being gathered at the time, Russia looked like it was gearing up for a full-scale invasion. The The signs were all there, so I decided to get out there first to see it all firsthand. And that's an invasion that took many, many people by surprise, I much mean, of Western intelligence as well. But as a, as a journalist, you thought, worth, worth a punt. Yeah, I mean, look, I, I, I don't just do sort of like first-hand reporting. I do open source, I do analysis, I do opinion. So like, I, I have different things about me that that meant that I was looking at things that maybe some other people weren't. And there was a really interesting uh, Telegraph podcast. They do a daily podcast on, on Ukraine. They had a, a Russia correspondent, a Moscow correspondent, and his name escapes me now. But he was talking about how he called it wrong. And he was saying that, look, everyone that I was speaking to in the Kremlin was telling me this is not happening. There's not going to be an invasion. And it just shows the kind of the difference in sorts of types of journalism. And if, if, if your type of journalism is only based on sources and that's, that stacks up really well for lots of different things. But if everyone in the Kremlin is, is doesn't know and only Vladimir Putin and a handful of associates do and you're discounting open source information, which is showing the arg the counter argument to that would be, well, Putin did this a year beforehand. He had all his troops on the border, but this time it was different. This time he'd had enough to stage an invasion on the border. He had blood banks, mobile crematoriums. These were not just warning signs. These, this was, this is, this is it. This was the moment. So I think that the people, analysts, journalists that were caught blindsided, I'm not going to get into the reasons why they've all got their own reasons why, but I just think that there was a lack of intelligence based on gathering enough information to make that assessment. It wasn't wasn't that obvious to, to some people, but it was screamingly obvious to me and many, many other journalists and, and analysts. Yeah, well, thank too. you for that. I, I find that persuasive. What did you see when you went there and you spent, you've been there quite a bit of the past year? What did you see there that people could not see or find out about if they weren't if they weren't there 
So, I mean, one of the most dramatic things, and it just it happened so quickly. I was out with with friends the night before, other journalists that were out there. Um, so even some of them really weren't persuaded that it was about to happen. And after the speech, the Putin speech, and then I was still on the streets around four or five in the morning. But every night beforehand in Kiev, four or five in the morning, there's still people walking around. So there was like a deathly silence when 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 that news first hit. And from that moment onwards, Kiev changed dramatically. Every single day was a new a new thing. For a start, the the government driving trucks loads of rifles into the suburbs and opening the the doors and saying, "Guys, arm yourselves." It was it was like madness. The first forty eight hours, loads of journalists bugged out, loads of people bugged out of the country. All the all the diplomats bugged out. So it was like completely empty in the middle of Kiev after like thirty six forty eight hours. That you had everyone hiding in the train stations at first. But then Kiev became a fortress, and that's something you couldn't see on the news because you weren't really allowed to go around filming. But over almost overnight, Kiev went from looking to looking like a modern cosmopolitan European city to something like a, a dystopian war film where blockades have been set up, the which is the kind of picture that we've been really gripped by on the news. You and know, these extraordinary scenes at this reversal from what was a utterly cosmopolitan, thriving. And, and and I'm sure you would have seen loads of the concrete bunkers and so on that were that were erected a week, a week and a half into the war. The first few days were like the most ramshackle shopping trolleys and and just sheet metal, anything that people could cobble together, and was was armed on the streets. It just it just everything changed to like you knew you were at war, and then. The, the bombardment started and then people just started dying all over the place as Russia started targeting civilian infrastructure. And that's something else I was expecting. And, and for some reason, that also caught people by surprise. We'll come on to the effects of that in just a moment. But James, when you and your team are trying to find out day by day what is going on there, what do you do? Well, we certainly listen to people who've been on the front line like us here, but naturally we have our sources, both Ukrainian sources on the ground and, and there's various written sources which come straight from the front. And ultimately, research here at Chatham House, as you know, comes from interaction at the risk of a slight plug as we speak now. Because you, can plug, can, you can plug it. <laughs> uh, because Chatham House can walk and chew government at the same time, there's actually a, another seminar going on right now on Russia's rel- and Ukraine's relative strengths and weaknesses. It'll also be available online at the same time as, as this podcast. So that is research and that's how we find out frankly by discussing it with pretty much everybody else and where are we now we've had these months of the ukrainian counteroffensive raising high high hopes for this where do you think it's going well it's just on the on the question of, of calling it i mean i just if i, if I could just just to pick up on Oz's point there then it's absolutely true to say that that so many people called it wrong a majority partly because of course it's not the rational decision as we understand it i mean how how putin who would have been much better off for his country his people his economy had he not done had he not gone in like this but also because i think there's been a fundamental misunderstanding of russia frankly for pretty much the last 22 years of Putin's presidency. As for right now, well, obviously, positions are beginning to freeze, quite literally. It's about minus 10 in Kiev right now. It's going to get worse up to about minus 20, minus 25. Snow's just fallen this week. That doesn't mean to say that war will come to a stop, of course because drones can still function, missiles can still function. So there is this, this infrastructural attack that you're talking about, Oz, is obviously as a result of the Russian retreat from places like Kherson and Kharkiv. There's no coincidence in the, in the, in the cause and effect there. But 
That said, and perhaps this is my key point, Bronwyn, is that I don't think that what's happening on the front line is the key point in this war. Ukraine could make some advances or it could make some retreats. That won't have an effect. I think what we should be really concerned about and what Chatham House is so concerned about is actually the West position, because that's actually what Ukraine will stand and fall by. And that's what you've been writing quite a lot about, about whether or not that position will hold together. But as you describe it now, it is hard to know exactly how this is going to play out, who's going to who's going to win, if you like. Lena, I wonder if you could take us into what this looks like from the Middle East and, and North Africa, and your team's been looking at this, how countries there are looking at this and what the, what the significance of this is. Well, one of the key things is observing that there was surprise in Europe by Russia's actions, which to many people in the region was not a surprise at all. I think part of the surprise came because a lot of people in Europe thought this could never happen to us. And perhaps that was another reason why people dismissed the signs, not necessarily missed the signs, but dismissed the signs, even when they were right there. As, it as was a dismissal. It definitely it was. Right, so they saw a, them and they set them aside. Yeah, they thought, no way. This is Europe. This is not World War Two. We're done with that. It's not going to happen to us. So in the region, people were saying, well, actually... We have been observing and living through this, especially when it comes to the Syrian conflict. A lot of what Russia did in Ukraine, it had already done in Syria and had been doing for several years. But it seems, sadly, that not many people outside the region was taking this very seriously or paying attention. So I and lots of other observers and analysts and and people in general from the region have been saying that in a way, the way the international community indirectly or sometimes directly allowed Russia to kind of do whatever it wanted in Syria empowered Russia to do what it's doing now. In I think Ukraine. this is a hugely important point. James, do you feel that there's a link back with what happened in Syria? I, I absolutely do. R- Russia, Russia learns from its mistakes. And I wouldn't confuse a poor plan, which Russia had, with a poor army, which is actually not entirely true. But it did this exactly on a, on a smaller scale in, in Syria. It ignored the battlefield and concentrated on civilian infrastructure. It raised the ground. Aleppo is obviously the example. And it made life impossible for cili- civilians to function. As a result, there was capitulation and Assad's forces took over. We're seeing exactly the same thing now two points are really i mean you took the words so out of my mouth just as soon as you said that i wanted to say there was there was a precedent and the precedent was the impunity that russia operated in russia has a security council veto it's been using it's been abusing that for for many years now the americans have abused that in the middle east too so let, let, let's not make no mistake about that a parallel that, that putin makes as well yes but but there is a significant difference between how America operates and how Russia operates. And Russia targets civilians as priority. That is their that's their military targets. And anyone that watched so everyone that was watching Syria expected a full scale invasion. That's that's the thing. And some of the people who for many years defended Russia's involvement in Syria based on some terrorism idea was just based on on just a false picture of reality you to to have that notion of russia you have to ignore the fact that they were carpet bombing hospitals by priority uh, and using the every international mechanism at their disposal to do that they were in the un so the un would get the coordinates of msf hospitals un hospital whatever hospital they would pass them to the russians because that's what the un does and then the russians would bomb them and they did this for years and years and years and years the international community kept repeating the same mistake for me the moment i knew 
that that things would had changed completely was the chemical weapons when when Bashar al-Assad started using chemical weapons. Once those norms were violated, both Putin and Assad realized they could do pretty much whatever they wanted, mm. and no one was going to do anything to stop them. And, and and that's the reality, really. And I'm thinking back to those first years when Russia began to move into Syria and, and give support to Assad. And I remember British officials saying, Russia's in a very weak point at this point. The oil price is on the floor. It's got no no ability to uh, to do anything. The second point I wanted to yeah. just come on very quickly. Now I'm coming back to Lena after that. Go on. Uh, <laughs> Go is, on. Is, uh, you said that the, 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 the Syrian rebels eventually capitulated. It wasn't because of the targeted bombing so they moved they moved hospitals into caves the resilience of the syrian people especially Ghouta, who held out for two chemical weapons attacks the longest military siege in modern history it's not spoken about enough the siege of sarajevo is still spoken about siege of uh, Ghouta lasted a year and a bit longer it's the longest military siege in modern history they had everything destroyed they were starved besieged bombarded five and a bit years they survived against the forces of russia the forces of assad the forces of iran so the idea that Russia can force any kind of capitulation through this kind of strategy in Syria, in Ukraine, is just completely wrong because if Ghouta can survive five and a bit years, then the people of Ukraine will survive much longer, as long as the West keeps supporting them. As long no as, and this, this is James's point, our podcast listeners cannot see the elegant gesture of assent that James is making, but he is uh, to that point. <laughs> Lena, I, you were also nodding vigorously. I wanted to come back to you on this point that uh, you know, at this moment, we don't know quite how this is going to play out and countries in the region might have found this not as much a surprise as, as, as perhaps Western Europe did, but still at this point, they don't know how it's going to play out either. How are they positioning themselves? Well, this is the thing. The bigger political picture or geopolitical picture means that a lot of countries in the region, partly because of the Syria scenario, have become less trusting of the West and are seeing in the Ukraine crisis an opportunity to strengthen their own geopolitical standing, mainly vis-a-vis the United States. And so you have people in places like Turkey or UAE or Saudi Arabia seeing in the Ukraine crisis an opportunity to assert themselves. And that's why, for example, when President Biden went to Saudi Arabia to say, please increase oil production because we now have a threat to our national security because of the Russian invasion of Ukraine, the indirect response from Saudi Arabia was, well, what about our national security in this region? So there is a lot of trust lost, unfortunately, between many countries in the Middle East and the West Mm. in general, but particularly the, the United States. And that explains why these countries have not taken a very bold stance against Russia in this conflict. And that's why they're kind of positioning themselves in a way in the middle. Really interesting. And can you just take us into where Turkey is in this? Well, Turkey is, 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 is exactly in this in the same category of countries that are seeing in this conflict an, an opportunity to increase Turkey's standing, especially that President Erdogan is, is facing an election very soon. And he feels that this is yet another opportunity to kind of assert himself against the West. One of the sticking points, of course, for Turkey is that in the Syrian context, the United States has chosen to support the Syrian Democratic Forces, which happen to be mainly Kurdish, and Turkey sees this as a threat to its own national security and is unhappy about this scenario. So in a way, the Ukraine crisis has become a convenient tool for Turkey to get back at the US geopolitically. 
We'll certainly deal with those Turkish elections next summer as they as they get closer. James, if you could just round this off for us. As we say, we're in this freezing winter in Ukraine. Ukraine's had these successes. Russia's retreated a bit, but as you said, maybe tactically. What are you going to look for at this point to know how this might go forward? Yeah, that's that's absolutely key. And it's a, probably where I'd finish off from what I also was saying in the sense that I, I, I think we, we mustn't we mustn't fall into the trap of the triumph of hope over perhaps a little bit of reality. Uh, the Ukrainian, Ukrainian leadership is very keen not to instill a sense of optimism and uh, and victory in the West, lest, of course, it, it, it brings back its support. Uh, I think actually there are real risks here. I would look for, I would actually look for, for a weakness in the societal resilience of Ukraine as winter falls in, in the economy. I mean, look, I, I just, Uk- uh, what do you mean by that? Because well, the, the, the Ukrainians themselves start to think, look, yeah, we've had enough. Uh, yeah. That it's not it's not out of the question. Right now, they're surviving on mobile generators, on imported batteries. It's a real struggle for existence right now. And with a few more strikes, I mean, at the moment, they are, of course, repelling an awful lot of Russian missiles, about 70 to 80 percent. But if that were to change in some way, then, of course, that does affect conditions on the ground. But look at the Ukrainian economy. The, U- the Russian economy is only going to fall by 3 to 4 percent next year, but the Ukrainian economy by 40 to 50 percent, and they may well have hyperinflation. So there are real risks for Ukraine. We really haven't won this yet, despite what we often see, this surfeit of optimism in the news. 40 to 50% fall in the economy. I think we need to remember that. Let's move to our second subject, Syria, that word that has been tugging at us through all this. And Oz, again, I wonder if you could tell us about your experiences in Syria, where you were reporting from. Sure. You you brought up Erdogan earlier and his relationship with the West and that he's definitely using Ukraine in that way. And I think it's really interesting because I, I agree with you. I think Erdogan's sort of a unique uh, example as well in that he's also kind of got a bit of a rivalry with Vladimir Putin and he hasn't really forgotten about the stuff that happened in Syria now he might be allied with him pretty much but but there is also sort of Turkey supplying through Baikar technology supplying TB2 drones and other armaments to Ukraine they're not making a big song and dance about it but you can see that that Syria is tied into this in, in, in many different other ways. So, I mean, look, I, I, I didn't cover Syria extensively from the ground. I covered it extensively from Beirut, from Turkey, um, not not going into frontline stuff, not in the same way I did in Mosul or, or in Ukraine. Um, it was really difficult for journalists, especially one uh, who was quite early in my career at the time. But yeah, I mean, look, I, I've I've been documenting atrocities and human rights abuses in in Syria for going back it's even. It's an f- extremely dangerous place for journalists. Yes. Um, many many killed there, and, and particularly dangerous for freelance ones, I might say. So yeah, so I look. I mean, I did a lot of open source stuff as well. It's how I cut my teeth in open source work. Um, one of the things that that I did was we we proved that the Russians themselves had bombed a marketplace in Idlib, right down to the fact that we we got the communication. The cell tower communication between the, the tower controls and the, and the jet fighters, and they would use language like they were delivering sweeties, delivering candy. When they, right at the moment, they'd they'd struck the civilian marketplace, dozens killed. That's the kind of thing that we were dealing with on a, and and the thing is that while we were dealing with it, no one really cared. The the biggest the biggest shock was well, not the, no one. No, but but you know what I mean. The international community's response wasn't there. Has to be some. It was strongly worded letters. You could you could you could 
fill this room with the amount of strongly worded letters written, but no, absolutely no action taken whatsoever. The biggest, the biggest incident was the bombing of the UN aid convoy by Russia, because that was a that was a convoy they'd negotiated to allow into the area. Just, to, just, to, just to complete. It was just so insulting to everything that <laughs> that we're supposed to have international norms you know and once they did that and and then the un rep- investigated it and concluded that the russians had did it and even still even still nothing happens and maybe you can say the un security council blocks it but that's a whole subject in itself exactly lena i wonder if you could just take us into russia's role in Syria now. Oz has been talking about a r- rivalry, but obviously the, the support is clear. What role is Russia playing now? Russia remains very dominant in Syria right now. I mean, the air intervention began in 2015. And they are there, not really on the ground, because they're using, in a way, their partners, the Iranians, for that. So Syria is actually a quite low-cost military campaign for Russia. So they're there. However, there are some indications right now that the Ukraine war is giving the Iranians a bit more opportunity to kind of expand their role inside Syria. And in, in, is, in what way? Because other people are distracted or because Yeah, because, yeah. because Russia has Ukraine as a, as a key priority. Not that Russia is going to deploy troops or, or, or personnel from Syria to Ukraine. It, it, it doesn't need to do that. But the main attention is Ukraine. And Iran is seeing this as an opportunity to kind of expand what it's doing on the ground in Syria. But Russia remains there. It continues to bomb. And that's something that perhaps the news does, does not report very often these days that these military campaigns by Russia are ongoing, especially in northwest Syria. So yeah, I mean, Russia is there because no one has stopped it, really. If if the United States and its allies had been more assertive very early on, I don't think Russia would have entered the Syrian conflict in 2015. I mean, they weren't there in 2011. They were there as a traditional ally of the Assad regime, but not on the ground. Yeah, I'd have to agree with that. The reality is that Russia won in Syria. I mean, it forced the foremost global military power into retreat. It rode all over Barack Obama's red lines, and Putin learned from that, and he thought it would, the same would happen in Ukraine. It's just that Ukrainians are more invested in it. The second point, however, is I don't know, I don't know if we disagree on this, Lena, but I, I would argue that such of the forces that Putin has unleashed upon himself in Ukraine, on himself, maybe be now that we are pressuring the Ukrainian economy. But I think that Russia's global tentacles will retract a little bit over time because it just won't have the capacity and capability to do all that it wants to do in Venezuela, in in the South Pacific, in the Far East. Doesn't and, mean that and it will retract from precisely here, though. You mean here? Syria. In the UK? No, I don't mean I don't mean Chatham House. <laughs> I mean I mean Syria. Uh, not, not, not in total, but I just think that there, there is a there is a capacity limit for Russia, and as it expends all its resources on Ukraine because it's a major priority, I just don't think its quest for global influence can retain can remain the same. Really interesting point. I just want to bring us finally to the question of information in the Syria war, and we've been touching on it in various points. Information: what is reported, what is misreported. I'm thinking of the white helmets incident. Lena, this is something you've you've looked at a lot. Yeah, I mean, uh, there was a concerted propaganda campaign by Russia, a misinformation campaign to paint the White Helmets, for example, as a terrorist group, 
which of course is not true. But they were equally painting practically anyone who's a Syrian opposition figure as a terrorist figure as well. And this is something that the Syrian regime did. And sadly, a lot of people, even in the West, fell for this kind of misinformation and started propagating this narrative, especially those who kind of adopt the umbrella of imperialist resistance. So uh, unfortunately, that did, did gain some traction. But the reality is Syria is a, a, a crisis that began as a peaceful protest. And it was certainly not a terrorist-led campaign against the, 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 the peaceful president al-Assad, not at all. It's an old, old subject of, of whether propaganda can, can win wars in, in this way. Or what's the thing that you're most uh, you would most like to know about within Syria at the moment? The thing that I'd most like to know within Syria at the moment, I mean, like one of the things is, is Syria is being propped up or the Assad regime is being propped up itself by Iran and by Russia and Iran and Russia are both now going through some some turmoil of their own. So the regime is, is, is a, essentially a vassal state and and what I would like to know is what the future looks like if if those guarantees are no longer there. I know there are movements within the Arab world to readmit them to the Arab League and so on, which again it shows how America's role in the Middle East has really fallen back. And and I think that going back to your point about information and information wars, Russia was remarkably successful in Syria. They hoodwinked many people. You had award-winning journalists like Robert Fisk regurgitating regime propaganda, denying atrocities. Once once, once Russia had reached this point in which there were people who were willing to stake their reputations to defend Russia, Russia's lies, let's be fair, then we were in real trouble, but they haven't been able to do that in Ukraine. Ukraine was the moment, the straw that broke the camel's back, and, and people weren't as willing to believe that all Ukrainians were Nazis the way they were willing to believe that all Syrians were ISIS. I don't know what that says about us, I'm not here to, to talk about that really, but information war-wise, Russia's information war system has broken and and they have been defeated in recent battles. The war is not over. But as far as information war goes, Russia's currently losing and losing badly in a way that they haven't done for, in my entire lifetime, a generation. James, do you agree? And within Russia as well? I absolutely do. I also think that the military is only one way that, in which Russia fights warfare. Mm-hmm. We, we all, you, well, we hear about this hybrid warfare. This astonishing but, yeah. deployment of missiles and Propaganda, absolutely, and, and diplomatic warfare and economic warfare. So, if you, so it is an all-pervasive, very modern uh, attack and very wide spectrum. But in terms of, if I would, if I was to answer the question on, on what to look for next year, I'd be looking for cracks in the Russian elite. I don't, I don't see any right now, but. It might be murmurings in corridors. This is how things start and over time. So I think we've got to look for any signs of uh, of dissent. It's quite subtle to begin with, but it could happen over, over a period of time if Russia continues to, to, to have defeats inflicted upon it. Okay, well, thank you for that. And that takes us almost around the corner of the year with that vision of murmurings in corridors. And Chatham House people will bring you all those uh, thoughts about murmurings and so on. We are going to have to wrap up there. But a big thanks to my guests, Oz Katerji, Lena Katib, and James Nixie. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. Thank you. You can follow all of our speakers on Twitter, as well as all the work of our Middle East and North Africa program and the Russia and Eurasia program. 
Oz is a prolific writer as well, and his writing can be found on many, many outlets. And you can find all of Chatham House's podcasts, and they're more than just this one, on Apple, Spotify, and major podcast platforms, and as well as through our social media. So do like and follow us, and please do leave us our review. I ask you almost every week, and we really do appreciate it, whatever you say. To read more from our experts around the world and to find more about our events or to become a member and coming up to Christmas, we're pushing that one too. Don't forget to visit our website, chathamhouse.org, where you can follow the continuing work of our colleagues. This week alone, you'll be able to find our work on Nigeria's elections next year, which is proving immensely popular on the EU's oil price cap and much, much more. So from Chatham House, where despite all these conflicts and troubles we write about, we are a zone of peace. I'm Bronwyn Maddox. See you next week. 